And I want to preach to you on the unique death of Christ. Let's begin reading at verse number 1 of Isaiah chapter 53. The Word of God says, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'd ask that you'd bless your word. There's not a one of us in this room that's worthy and fit to be blessed in and of ourselves, but we come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ into your throne room. And we ask, Father, that as you've blessed him, We're joint heirs with Him that You'd bless us. Lord, we ask that as Your Word is perfect and inspired and preserved, that You'd bless it. Father, as You've loved us enough to send Your Son to die for us, that You might redeem our souls, we pray and ask that our spiritual man could be blessed today. We know that You love us, Lord. We know that You care for us. So we'd ask that the Holy Ghost would do a work in hearts that is needful this morning. Lord, we love you. We thank you for each and every person that's here. We thank you for loving us, and we thank you for Calvary. We ask all this in Christ's precious name. Amen. We have read what I believe is probably the most familiar, most famous portion of Scripture prophetically concerning the death of Christ in all of the Word of God. Many people, when you, if you were to name, ask people to name a few chapters of the Bible, that they love or that they are fascinated by. Undoubtedly, you would probably find Matthew chapter 5 in there. You may find Matthew chapter 24 in there. You would probably undoubtedly find the 23rd Psalm in there. 
And then with all of those monumental chapters, you would find Isaiah 53. There's something about the vivid language that God uses through the prophet Isaiah that draws our mind's eye into the focus of Calvary and helps us to see what Christ did for us in a way that it seems no other portion of Scripture does or can. We are consciously aware as we read this chapter that we are speaking of the Savior. Anybody that is scripturally honest, academically, intellectually honest, anyone that reads the Word of God with their eyes open, undoubtedly will see that our Savior is the Lamb slain in Isaiah 53. We will undoubtedly see the redemptive work of Jesus Christ as being fully sufficient to abate the wrath of Almighty God against sinful man. We see that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. There are several passages in the Bible that I just have a feeling I'm never going to understand till I get to heaven. And that's one of them right there. I can't see how it could have pleased the Lord to bruise him, except to know that just as Jesus Christ, who for the glory that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, that in that same manner God the Father saw the untold masses that would be saved through the cross of Calvary, saw His Son triumphantly risen from the grave, glorified and all glory being given to His name, saw His name highly exalted and every knee bowing before Him, and somehow within the eternal mind and heart of God, God smiled on what took place on Calvary. There are several portions of Scripture I don't know that I'll fully understand. I believe them. You know, you don't have to understand the Bible to believe it. In fact, you'll find that if if you'll believe it, it'll go a long ways towards you understanding it. Amen? Lots of folks want to understand it before they're willing to believe it, but that's not how faith works. We walk by faith and not by sight. And there's times we have to choose betwixt the two. I want to point out three qualities about the death of Christ this morning that I find to be extremely unique. You'll not find another death recorded in human history that has ever been like the death of the Son of God, in these three qualities, and I want to just share them with you this morning. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, I don't know what kind of service this is going to be. I don't know if if I'll do backflips and you'll do them with me, or, or I don't know if it'll just be one of those where the Holy Ghost just slows things down and allows us to picture Calvary. But I promise you, we'll try to yield to the Lord. I want to say, number one, that the death of Christ was unique in that it was a vicious death. Now, there have been many vicious deaths throughout human history. If you're like me, and if there's something wrong with you, you probably are like me. You like sometimes to read and to study about true crime and uh, about the, the twisted minds that have committed some of the heinous acts through human history. I do think there is such thing as an unhealthy infatuation with it, but I also think we can learn a lot about the depravity of the human heart and mind by seeing the lengths to which men have gone to and the horrible things they've done in taking the life of another. We could talk about serial killers that dismembered uh, their victims. We could talk about serial killers that awful and deplorable things uh, that sometimes aren't even fit to be mentioned uh, in the midst of company. But I'd propose to you this morning that the death of Jesus Christ was more vicious than any death that has ever taken place in human history because there was three different levels to the death of Christ, all of which are superlative to any death that has ever taken place before. I would say, first off, because of the physical qualities of the death of Christ, It was a vicious death. 
We don't know it. You know, it do it do you good sometimes to study words. And I don't mean Hebrew and Greek uh, any more than I mean English or Latin or anything else, but just to look at how words formulate where they come from. And you'll find that as you we have a word in the English language, can I say to you that the death of Christ set a new standard for pain? We have a word, and many of you have probably used it at some point in your life, unknowing that you were paying tribute to the vicious death of the cross of Calvary. But we have a word in the English language, and it comes, it's derived from the Latin rendering of the word crucifixion. Some of you at times have been in, in great pain, and you've said, my pain is excruciating. Literally, that word is derived from the Latin word for crucifixion. Literally, the Son of God set a new standard and level for what pain the human body could endure. We read it, you know, I mean, listen, if the only picture you've ever got of Calvary is from Mel Gibson, somebody sold you short. Hollywood can't put enough makeup on. Hollywood can't do enough special effects. The mind of man cannot conceive the physical torment that our Savior went through. Can I give you the most concise description in the entire Word of God of it? If you've got your Bibles open, you're right there at it. Look at chapter 52 and look at verse 14. The Bible says, As many were astonished at thee, speaking of the Savior, His visage was so marred more than any man, and His form more than the sons of men. That tells me two things about the Son of God. One is it tells me that He was more physically mutilated than any man has ever been. More than any man is what your Bible says before you. More than any man. And it tells me a second thing, that, that the Son of God was mutilated to such a degree that if you were to look at Him, He would not even be recognizable as a human being. That's what it means when it says, more than the forms of the Son of Man. In other words, when you were to look upon Him, He would not even look like a human being upon the cross of Calvary. You say, how could it get that far? Well, you know, we have a... We have a flannel graft idea of Scripture. Can I say that? If you've been around churches long enough, you know what I mean. We've got a flannel graft idea of Scripture. And we've just got certain ideas about things that happen, and, and, but if we were to really see it the way it took place, it would astonish us. Do you understand that, that the crucifixion of Christ was exceedingly vicious over and above the crucifixion of others? Crucifixion was a common Roman practice. But the design of crucifixion was what was for the purpose of a, of, a, of a person thirsting to death, dying of dehydration, and dying of suffocation. The nailing of the nails through the hands of the Son of God was something that was exceedingly above the viciousness that the Romans normally participated in. We know why his hands were nailed. We say hands. We believe it was probably in the wrist that he was nailed in that space betwixt the two bones. It was common in uh, Scripture for the hand and the wrist to be identified synonymously one with another. You say, why do you believe that, preacher? Because if he had been pierced directly through the palm, there would have been bones that would have been broken. The Bible says that not a bone in him was broken. So we believe he would have been pierced through this portion of the wrist. That was uncommon in that day. They were trying uh, to add an extra layer and an extra level of physical torment. That was not common. The same thing was true of the nails being pierced through his feet. If we could dial back and see just exactly what they did to him, it would astonish us. That's what the Bible says there. They were astonished at thee. It began with the uh, floggings and the scourgings. 
Now, when we think of a scourging, we just think of somebody taking a bull whip or something of that sort and laying it across a person's back. And by the way, that's an awful and terrible pain, I'm sure. But we learn as we study history that the scourgings that the Romans partook in was something much more vicious than just a single whip being laid across the back of a convicted person. They had, and if you've ever been, if you've been in church any amount of time, I told you I ain't going to tell you anything new. If you've been in church any amount of time, you've heard what I'm about to tell you. But they had a whip that they called the cat of nine tails. The cat of nine tails was nine separate strands of leather that were woven and, and, and that protruded off of this whip's handle. And as if that was not bad enough, and by the way, you could kill a man whipping him that way. And if that wasn't bad enough, it was customary for uh, criminals that were of a, of a particularly deplorable uh, conviction. It was not uncommon for them to take pieces of bone or of rock that they had sharpened to razor sharp qualities and to weave them or tie them into the tips of those Whips And you see, the way they whipped was a little different than the way we, we picture. Usually, when a person is scourged, uh, they take the whip and they lay it across their back with the purpose of slicing or laying open their flesh by the velocity and, and by the impact of that whip. But a cat of nine tails was designed in a different way. They would take these pieces of bone and these pieces of rock and they would fix them into the ends of the whip. And that Roman soldier would stand up and he would wrap that whip around the body of the convicted person. And those pieces of bone and of rock and of other sharp objects would dig in to the flesh. And that big Roman soldier would take, and with all of his might, he'd pull. And like a shredder, those pieces would just wrap around the body of the person that was being whipped. Literally, our Savior was laid open physically before this world. The Bible says that, that they plucked out his beard. If you don't have a beard, that don't mean much to you. But if you got one, and if you've ever had one when you had kids, that means something. Amen. That means something. The pain associated with it. They would hit him. They would buffet him. They would pummel him. And then in the midst, after they had laid him open, after uh, the, the human body could barely take any more pain, they tell us that they placed that wooden cross upon his shoulder. And made him walk that distance. Halfway through, his body literally physically collapsed underneath the weight of it. Another man had to be taken to carry the cross. Here they've made it to Calvary's Hill. And what was traditionally, we, we always see uh, the, the cross way up on the hilltop. And it's, you know, 12, 15 foot in the air. That's what we see at Easter time. But that was probably not how that would have happened. Uh, typically, a, a criminal was crucified close to the road so that those that were passing by could see them and mock them and, and, and laugh in derision. And it'd be a warning to little children that would be riding with their parents or traveling with their parents. They'd point to that cross and they'd say, you don't want to do wrong or you're going to end up like that man upon the cross. And typically they would not be elevated immensely high in the air, but rather they would dig a hole in the ground and they would lay the, the bottom of the cross even with that hole. And after they had nailed them, or, or rather most of the time they were tied, but after our Savior was nailed to the cross, they would lift that up and slide it into the hole. And when it fell about a foot or so, the bottom of that cross would make impact with the ground and it would jerk the shoulders of the person that was upon the cross out of socket. There they would hang for hours, for hours, many times for days and for days. 
And the design of it was both that they would die of dehydration and of the wounds that had already been inflicted, but then also they'd suffocate because after hanging upon the cross with their shoulders uh, being dislodged from the joints, it would put pressure upon their lungs and they couldn't breathe. And so they would take and they would push up upon their feet. Now, many times that wasn't that big of a deal for a person being crucified in a normal way. Their feet were lashed, and I'm sure it was uncomfortable but they could do that. But do you realize our Savior had to push upon those nail wounds to lift up and to get a breath? This is the reason why when it was time to, to speed up the execution, they would come and break the legs of the person who was being crucified so they didn't have the, the, the physical capacity to lift themselves up and breathe anymore. They were essentially suffocating them to death. There has never, there has never been a death like the death of Jesus Christ. I would say it was a physically, a physically vicious death, but I would say that it was an emotionally vicious death. We have emotions as human beings. Our Lord had emotions as being a human being. You say, you believe He was a human being? Yeah, I believe He was 100% man. I believe He was 100% God. I believe He had no sin nature. I believe He was absolutely sinless and spotless. But I believe that He did have the same passions, in a sense, that we have. And He had the same emotions. And can I say that there is, there is a level on which emotion operates that intellect doesn't. All of the men said, yep. <laughs> You ever had your wife look at you and say, I don't feel good? And you say, why? And she says, I don't know. And you say, then quit feeling that way. And she says, I can't. And you just get frustrated and leave the room. <laughs> you ever had that happen? Men work that way too, though. We don't call it feeling bad. We, we'll, we'll just not say anything and be in a bad mood. <laughs> but there is a level on which emotions operate that, that intellect has nothing to do with. And, and I would say that the, the, the crucifixion of the Savior must have been a great emotional Torment for him. Can I read to you a couple of scriptures? Look at verse number three of our passage. The Bible says he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Look what it says in verse number four. Surely hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. There has never been a betrayal like the betrayal of Judas. To, the, to this day, if you want to call someone a, a turncoat, or if you want to accuse someone of betrayal, you can still to this day call him a Judas. And all over the world, in, in, in hundreds of languages, they'll know exactly what you mean. That betrayal set a standard for betrayal that has never changed. And I think it's because of the great emotional betrayal it must have been. Can I just, can I just give you something? The Lord loved Judas as much as he ever loved you. He did. I don't believe that Judas was some sort of, of being of the spiritual realm. I do believe he was indwelt by Satan. I do believe he was indwelt by Satan. And I do believe that our Lord knew that he would betray him. But I still believe that the Lord loved him. He tasted death for every man. Was Judas a man? Tasted death for every man. That doesn't mean Judas was going to get saved, but the Lord died for lots of folks that will never get saved. And could you imagine what a betrayal it was? Do you know that there's a lot of times when, when folks do us wrong and we know we've had it coming? 
But do you realize that Jesus Christ was not only the perfect human being and the perfect Savior, but He was the perfect friend. He'd never done a thing. Nothing worthy of betrayal. Oh, how his heart must have broken as he hung upon the cross. You say, but preacher, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Yes, that doesn't minimize his grief. That maximizes his grace. It doesn't change the fact that upon the cross, he must have been heartbroken to see what humanity had done to him. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Here they had been waiting (laughs) Here they had been waiting 4,000 years for Messiah. Here He is. But men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Oh, how it must have broken His heart. I would say not only was it emotionally vicious, but I would say it was a spiritually vicious death. The spiritual implications that were attached to the death of Christ have never been attached to any other human being in human history. We suffer emotionally when we die, but as believers, we don't suffer spiritually when we die. But the Son of God suffered spiritually. And I'm I'm trying to be careful because I'm going to preach something here in just a second. But do you understand? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, For He hath made Him to be sin for us. Do you understand that everything that was abhorrent, everything that was repulsive, everything that, 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 that stunk in the holy nostrils of an almighty God and of His holy almighty Son, we have the idea sometimes like, God, you know, I mean, He ain't got no truck with sin, but the Son of God, He's kind of okay with it because He was a friend of sinners. Do you understand that the same things that offended the holiness of God the Father offended the holiness of God the Son? Uh, he's just as holy is the Father and the Holy Ghost is just as holy as both of them. I mean, it's a triune Godhead. And you understand that Jesus became the very things that He abhorred upon that cross. He didn't just bear it, He became it. There He hung upon the cross as a guilty sinner before His Almighty Father. He bore our sin. Oh, what a spiritual grief it must have been. You know what the Bible says about Lot? Now listen now. You know what the Bible says about Lot? That he vexed his righteous soul in seeing and hearing their evil deeds. He vexed... That's Lot. (laughs) I mean, most folks, if they don't know their Bible, will have questions about whether Lot was saved. I believe Lot was saved. You say, why? Because the Bible said he had a righteous soul. The only way to get a righteous soul is to have justification imputed unto you because you put your faith in the Lord. So I, I believe that Lot was a saved man. But if you look at Lot's life, you don't see much of anything that make you think he was a saved man. But it didn't change the fact that when he was in the midst of Sodom and Gomorrah, it grieved him, it vexed him, it tormented him to see all the wickedness around. Let me just let me let me throw a parenthesis right here, okay? Can I say that there's something wrong with the fact that we're not more vexed with the sin in the world today. Something wrong with that. Something wrong when when groups are having conferences to let let the sodomites know how okay they are with their lifestyle. Something wrong with that. Oh, I'll go ahead and put the other parentheses on the other side. You can breathe now. I'm not going to preach there. But let me just say that 
as it vexed Lot's righteous soul, how it must have vexed the soul of the Son of God. Not just to see, not just to hear, not just to be aware, but to become our very sin. I would say that the death of Christ was a vicious death. But can I say, number two, that the death of Christ was a vicarious death. In this way, it was unique, apart, separate from any other death that has ever taken place. Uh, Each and every one of us, when we die, we die our own death. But the Son of God, who never should have died, you listening? Never should have died. Do you know, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. If he hadn't become our sin, he couldn't have died. He's the prince of life, the book of Acts calls him. If there was anyone that could say, death has no right over me, it was him, and yet he still died. How could he do that? He died in our place. I would say that the death of Christ was, was vicarious, in that he suffered, his suffering was vicarious. Now, I'm telling you something that you aren't going to hear all the time. Everybody knows, and we'll talk about his sacrifice and his separation here in a minute, but everybody knows that Jesus died on the cross uh, for our sin. But do you understand he suffered vicariously for you? Now, I'm trying to be very careful with what I say, because when I say vicariously, I, I don't mean to imply you won't have to suffer. But it doesn't change the fact that he still suffered in your place. That's not to say, and it's very different from his sacrifice, because when he died for our sins, for the penalty of our sins, he took our sins away. There was remission of sins. He was the propitiation. We still have to suffer, but he still suffered in our place. Listen to what the Bible says. Look at verse 4 of Isaiah 53. Surely he hath borne our griefs, our griefs. That means nothing of the nail prints. That means nothing of the, uh, of the scourge of the whip. He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Look at verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Do you understand that when Jesus suffered, not just at the point of Calvary, but through his entire life, the experience that he endured was for the purpose that we might know we have a high priest that's been in our place before. Remember what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter number 4? Seeing then that we have a high priest... I'll just read it to you. I don't want to misquote it. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was, that's past tense, was. Right now we have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. That's present tense. Right now in the heavens, he can still be touched with the feelings of our infirmities when we approach unto him and we need help and grace. He can still not only sympathize but empathize with us. But the Bible says, and he was, he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He suffered in our place. I would say his suffering was vicarious, but I would say his sacrifice was vicarious. Look at chapter, verse number 6 of Isaiah 53. The Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray. That's something we've done. All we, that's you and me. All we, we have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's true of all of us. We've tried to do things our way. And the Lord hath laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. That was our iniquity. We deserve to bear the punishment, the penalty for that iniquity. But he vicariously was sacrificed in our place. Much like the sheep in the Old Testament, when the high priest would come on the Day of Atonement and place his hand upon the head of that offering and would pronounce over it all the sins of the nation. The nation of Israel, they deserved to die for those sins. But instead, that lamb was going to die in their place, or that bullock was going to die in their place. And in the same way, that was our cross. We deserve to die upon that cross. That was our place. It was our sin that nailed him there. But instead of us dying, he died. I would say his sacrifice was vicarious. But I would say also that his separation was vicarious. I remember one time, I I like to share this. I remember one time after I I was preaching, and uh, it was early on. I hadn't been here very long. And uh, I got up and I preached, and I was preaching on hell. And and God really moved. I mean, it wasn't my preaching, it wasn't my... But God really, really moved. And I was up there and I was preaching about all the terrible things of hell. And, and, and I preached, I, I mentioned about how one of the worst things about hell is the eternal separation of God. I mean, people were getting up out of their seats and, and moving to the back so that they wouldn't disturb folks while they was crying. I mean, we had the altar flooded. God really moved. And we closed out the service, and I felt like a wrung out dish rag. And I, and I came walking down here, and Brother Ralph sat right there. How many of y'all know, knew Brother Ralph most? I mean, he died in July, so most of you should. Brother Ralph was there. Ralph had no filter, no capacity for a filter whatsoever. And uh, Ralph came up, and, and he looked at me, and in the kindest and most respectful way, he said, Preacher, that thing about separation from God, do you just believe that, or do you have any Bible for that? <laughs> I said, no, Brother Ralph, I have Bible for that. I know the Bible says, if I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. I'm aware of that. I know that our God's a consuming fire. And we could have a theological discussion about the omnipresence of God, and maybe that's worthwhile at times. But there's no question that there is a separation, a, a separation in a sense that takes place between the, between the soul and spirit of the human being and the presence and fellowship and communion of God. There's no question that the sinner is not at peace with God while he is suffering through eternal damnation. And can I say that on the cross of Calvary, something very unique happened. It's never happened before, and it's never happened since. And praise God, it's never going to have to happen again. But all through the New Testament, any time Christ would talk to his Father, he'd always call him Father. Father, Father, I do always the things that please my Father. I and my Father are one. Uh, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And all through the New Testament. But upon the cross of Calvary, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 and 46, as he hung upon the cross, the Bible says that there was darkness at the, uh, about the space of three hours. And he cried out and he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani which the Bible says, which is interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is prophetic language that is taken from Psalms chapter 22 when the very same words are spoken by David prophetically where he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then it goes on to say this, Why art thou so far from helping me? Why art thou so far? He talks about the voice of my roaring. Why art thou so far from helping me? 
Can I say to you that something, something astounding happened upon the cross of Calvary? You and I deserve for our soul, spirit, fellowship to be severed from God eternally. You and I deserve to not enjoy the blessing and presence of God. You and I, we deserve to be cast out from God's kind presence and treated as though we were criminals and sinners and rotten and enemies with God. But there upon the cross of Calvary, in some mysterious way that I'll not venture to theologically dive into, in some way the relationship between the Son and the Father was severed so that we'd never have to be severed from Him. Now, you can ask me a thousand questions, and I, and I won't have a thousand answers. I can't explain everything about it. But I know enough Bible to know that it's true. It happened. Something about that relationship for that moment changed. Something happened. And do you remember what the Bible says in the book of Isaiah? It says, your sins and iniquities have separated you from your God. They've separated you. And He was separated in our place so that we need not be separated from God. Can I give you a third thing and I'll hush and I appreciate your patience. I would say that the death of Christ was unique in its vicious quality. I believe that the the death of Christ was unique in its vicarious quality. But I would say to you this morning, I can lift my hand towards heaven and bless His holy name in saying that the death of Christ was unique in its victorious quality. There's never been anybody die like He died because there's never been anybody raised like He rose. It's never happened the way that it happened. I would say that, number one, he was victorious over the plan of Satan. The Bible speaks of a mystery of iniquity that now worketh. And it speaks of the conspiracy of Satan. You say, preacher, are you a conspiracy theorist? No, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm I'm a conspiracy realist. Amen? Because there are some conspiracies. And the Bible speaks of a satanic conspiracy. And do you know that that conspiracy has existed all the way since the Garden of Eden? There in the garden when the serpent approached Eve, that was Satan's attempt. Do you, listen now, oh, I love, man, let me tell you something, we have some kind of God. We have some kind of God. Do you understand that Satan was seeking to destroy uh, the perfect creation of God. He was seeking to throw sin, uh, uh, an element of sin, into God's perfect creation. But do you know what God did? Do you understand that if Adam and Eve had never sinned, they would have never known that they was naked? Now listen, I, I'm, I'm not a, a, a psychologist, but I know that typically if you've got two folks and they don't ever know the other one's naked, you don't have any kids come from that kind of relationship. Right? Do you know that there in Genesis chapter number 3, the very first prophecy is given concerning the Messiah. He's the promised seed of the woman. He is the one that would come through the sin that Eve committed, through the depravity of man, through sin's fall, the Savior was promised. I'd say that we see it all the way back in the Garden of Eden. We see it in Cain. Uh, Do you know that Abel was to be initially the promised line and Cain killed him? We could see it in the the condition of the earth in the days of Noah when uh, every uh, imagination was uh, evil and thought of wickedness and and, and evil continually. You see it not only there, but you see it immediately after the ark uh, when God sought uh, to cast some kind, uh, or not God, when Satan sought to cast some sort of pollution into the Noahic line uh, through uh, through the actions of Ham. You 
you could see it uh, in the, the one world kingdom of Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. You could see it in the actions of the birth of Ishmael, where the uh, promised lineage was sought to be polluted by Satan. You could see it in the persecution and slaughter of the infants that took place there in Egypt, seeking to snuff out uh, the Jewish people. You come all the way down to the New Testament, you'll find another slaughter of infants where Satan was seeking to thwart the plans of God by Herod. All through the Bible, you'll see Satan trying to do something to throw a wrench in God's redemptive plan. But there upon the cross of Calvary, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter number 2, that he destroyed him that had the power of death. That is the devil. The plan of Satan was thwarted at the cross of Calvary. And, and just, just as through his most violent action the Savior was promised, through his most violent action the Savior was crucified and risen again in power and in glory. I'd say not only the plan of Satan, but I'd say the penalty of sin he was victorious over. And I'll just give you this one statement. We're running out of time. But can I say, just as Paul said, that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. There he become all the sins of all of humanity. Literally everything that sin could place upon him was placed upon him. But could I say it didn't defeat him? That's how righteous his righteousness is. That's how pure and holy that he is. That though he'd become the sin of all mankind, of all time past, of all time present, of all time future, though he bore and became our sins, still it could not pollute his holiness and his righteousness. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And then I would say that he was victorious over the power of death. It says in that same passage in Hebrews chapter number 2 that he he destroyed him that had the, the power of death, that is the devil, that he might deliver them who through their whole lifetime were subject unto bondage in fear of death. 1 Corinthians 15 describes it this way, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Speaks of how that the strength, uh, the, that the sting of sin is death and the strength of the sin is the law, but thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. He took the sting out of death. Now we can approach death. Hey, listen, when we come to death, and every one of us, if the Lord tarries, one thing about us, we may not have a lot in common, but if the Lord tarries, every one of us will die. And when we come to that place, we know that we're merely following through those chilling waters. The captain of our salvation, who has already to reverse that pathway, has already come through it victorious on the other side. <laughs> oh, man, you know the difference. You know the difference between a door that you want to go through and a door you don't want to go through is knowing what's on the other side. That's the difference. There's sometimes, you know, you always see it on these game shows. And they got like three doors up there. And if I was on there, I'd always pick the zonk one, you know, or whatever. I mean, I'd pick the one that give you a bunch of empty tuna cans. And... But the big question is what's on the other side of the door? For the lost man, he doesn't know what's on the other side of the door. For the atheist, he claims to not know what's on the other side of the door. Now, the Bible reveals it to us. But he claims to not know what's on the other side of the door. What an awful life to live, to be ever-present 
at the, at the threshold of a door upon which you do not know what's on the other side, but there is the, existence, uh, the existence of the atheist ever present on that threshold. He doesn't know when his life might end, and he claims to not know what resides on the other side of that door. But can I say that for you and I, we have no need to be afraid of the door. Christ said, I am the door. We not only know what's on this side, but we know what's on the other side. Our Savior has already been through, and He's the one we're following. Never had there been before. The Bible says in Acts chapter 2 concerning our Lord and His death that He was not able to be holden of death. Never before had there been a death like that. Oh, men had resurrected when God resurrected them. But Christ said, I lay my life down that I might take it up again. Nobody will take it from me. I'll lay it down. I'll take it up again. This power is given me from my Father. Never had there been a man that could resurrect of his own accord. Never before, but there was at Calvary. Oh, what a unique death the Savior died for us. Oh, what a blessed truth that He bore our sins. And maybe in this room, God's touched on a heart that's here. Maybe you'd say, well, preacher, I never just saw it that way. I never realized. I didn't know it was my sin. Could I say that it was your sin? But your sin's been paid for. You need only to come to Jesus Christ. Repent of that sin and ask forgiveness and He'll forgive you and He'll save you of it. He'll save you just as sure as He saved me and many others in this room. He's still able to save today because of this unique death. Maybe you're approaching unto death. You don't know it. Most of us wouldn't. But maybe you're coming to that part of life where it's ever-present on your mind or more than it used to be. Can I say that the saint, the Bible says precious in the eyes of the Lord are the death of His saints. We ought to see things like God sees things. It's precious because there, there need not be any fear for us as we approach death. Fear is a natural thing. Fear is an understandable thing. But the supernatural thing is to know that we need not fear in death, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, that it's far better to depart and be with Christ. We can have a peace and a comfort. Or maybe you're here today and God burdened your heart for a loved one that Christ loves that Christ died for. And if you've got a loved one that's without Christ, Christ does love them, and Christ did die for them. And maybe you want the Lord to give you boldness to be a better witness, or maybe you want the Lord to do something in their life to get their attention. Whatever that God has touched your heart about this morning, I want you to know this altar's open. I want you to come.